Good morning, all. We'll be in Jonah this morning. Technically, we'll be starting in chapter 1 of Jonah. We'll just be doing one verse, and then we're going to do chapter 2, and hopefully do all of chapter 3 as well here to kind of get the full scene of what's going on. You know, as we continue our study through Jonah, we left off last week with Jonah being swallowed by the great fish there in verse 17 of chapter 1. We had the reluctant prophet that would rather go thousands of miles the opposite direction than to see the wicked people of Nineveh repent. You know, God put him in a spiritual timeout of discipline to get his attention in the belly of the fish. Um, well, that's right, we're dismissing the kids for class. I, I, I see them leaving and I always forget that. Um, details of this great fish. We do not know the details of this great fish. Is it a large natural fish? Is it a miraculous created fish for this purpose? Um, maybe God shrunk Jonah and had him swallowed by a minnow. We do not know. Somehow, someway, he is in the belly of a fish, and he's going to be in there for a time period here, and God's going to use this. Now, as we mentioned last week, the main character in the book of Jonah is the Lord. His name is mentioned over 30 times in these short chapters. The main character is not Jonah. It is definitely not the fish. It is not the people of Nineveh. It is the Lord. And it's the Lord sovereignly determining everything that's happened here. As we mentioned last week, all this repetition of the phrase, verse 17, the Lord had prepared God prepares all these things in the book of Jonah to get his attention. It's easy to get caught up in these marginal details that are not foundational to doctrine. The fish, we just don't know. But the reality is this. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you can believe that there was a fish that God miraculously took care of to take care of Jonah. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then I can believe this. So to be honest, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the fish because that's really not the detail. The detail is what happens while he is in it. Verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly and said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. That's the word I want to start with, is the idea of affliction. If you remember the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, there was the son that got his father's inheritance. Now, please remember this story. He goes to his dad in Luke 15. He says, would you give me my share of the inheritance? Now, right from the beginning, you should realize how awful of a statement that is. What the son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead, because I want my inheritance. The only way to get an inheritance is if your parents have died. So when he says, I want my share of the inheritance, what the son is truly saying by looking at his father is, listen, you're worth more to me dead than you are alive. So just go ahead and either die so I can have my share, or I wish you were dead so that way I could get my share right now. So he goes ahead and he gets the inheritance and he goes out and lives his life in prodigal living. He just fills his life with all type of debauchery. But it says in Luke 15 that he began to be in want. Or some translation says he began to starve after wasting all his money. He was afflicted. That affliction drove him back to his father. Affliction is good. Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. It's good. Now, at the moment, we don't think that in any way whatsoever. Looking back, we see how affliction helped us and grew us deeper into the Lord. I I look back over some of the things in my years of ministry and life that were affliction at the time. I hated it. It was difficult. It led me to despair. But now I look back and I say, wow, Lord, that's some of the greatest things that you have ever taught me. That affliction drove me to be deeper in the Lord. As the old hymn says, some of you may remember, afflictions... Though they seem severe, and mercy oft are sent, 
They stopped the prodigal's career and forced him to repent. That's what affliction does. It leads us to repentance. So I want you to just notice that right from the beginning, verse 2, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. That is good. Now, there are very many, many unique places that people are praying in the Bible, but I don't know if you can find one more unique than the belly of a fish. I have no idea. I I can only speculate what that would look like. I imagine complete darkness. Anytime I've ever seen an animated version of this, I don't know how, but Jonah always seems to have a candle and a match that he can just miraculously pull out of his pocket and light that candle in the middle of this great fish. I do not believe that was true. I believe it was darkness. I believe it probably smelled awful. I believe it was disgusting. And I believe it was something he would not want to repeat in any way whatsoever. Now, we have to take a look at this because really chapter 2 is a psalm. I mean, that's really what it is. It's really just a prayer of, of praise and crying out to the Lord. So I want you to look at it from that perspective. Now, is this good or bad? Let's start with the good. It's good. How do we know it's good? There's not one word of petition in this prayer. You're not going to find one sentence of Jonah saying, please get me out of this. It is a prayer of where he thanks the Lord. There's a prayer of repentance. There's a prayer of rededication. So if you're looking at it from a good perspective, this is a psalm of praise where Jonah says, I've earned this. I deserve this. This is good. And God, thank you. Now let's go the bad route. Why is he praying? He's praying because, verse 2, he was afflicted. Warren Wearsby says this, Jonah's prayer was born out of affliction, not affection. He cried out to be God because he was in danger, not because he delighted in the Lord. I don't know. I I look ahead and I see Jonah's heart. If you jump ahead to chapter 4, Jonah's angry that Nineveh repents. I mean, look at what he says in verse 2. Actually, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. As we mentioned last week, Jonah would rather die than see Nineveh repent. Did he have a moment in this fish where he stops and says, Wow, Lord, I get it. Maybe, we really don't know. We know from chapter 4, his heart is not right with the Lord. I was reading about one guy's take on this, and he described this psalm. It has all the appearance of religious piety, but after a little probing and reflection, it proves to be more of a religious sham than anything else, and he described it like this. This is a great description. It goes, it's a one-inch snow over a garbage dump. That's a great visual for me. A one-inch snow over a garbage dump. It looks good on the outside, but when you break it down, is it really heartfelt? I don't know. God obviously allows him to go and have a second chance in chapter 3, but we see in chapter 4 that Jonah's heart was there. To be quite honest with you, I've had many times of prayer in my walk with the Lord where at that moment, I believe it was sincere. I believe it was truly sincere. Then as time went on, maybe it wasn't sincere as I thought it was. So at first glance, we do not fully know Jonah's heart at this moment, but the wording is obviously very, very good. Please note this is a connection to the book of Psalms. One teaching reference, 12 references to the Psalms. This is basically the book of Psalms. What he is saying here, you can find a psalm for every passage he basically says. So quick point before we move on. 
pray scripture. Pray scripture. Take the verse and literally pray what the verse says. Put your name in it and just pray it. Why would we pray scripture? I got three quick things on this before we move on. God's word doesn't return void. It doesn't return empty. So you're blessed to read God's word. So if I take God's word and I pray it, I'm reading it, which makes me blessed. It goes, takes me deeper. And it also blesses me because I'm praying his word. You know, we have certain prayers that we pray for our kids. We just put their names right in it. I just encourage you, find those passages, put their names in it, put yourself in it, pray scripture. Number two, it gives us a guidance. Sometimes I don't know how to pray. I am so utterly overwhelmed by the scenario and situation, or to be quite honest, I'm so full of flesh. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm disappointed, I'm hurt. Scripture gives me a roadmap. It gives me a guidance on how to pray. So therefore, the scriptures are directing me on how to pray rather than my emotions. And lastly, it helps us to remember God and remind God. Now, this is where people sometimes think this is strange. The Bible tells us to remind God of what he's already said. Now, Moses did this. David did this. The early church did this. Psalm 25, verse 6 says this, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. He is praying, remember God. Because does God forget? No. When people were faced with problems, they would pray scriptures and remind God of what he said, and therefore reminding themselves. So praying scriptures reminds God, not because he forgets, but it reminds you of his nature and his character. That's why when people are going through difficult times, one of the first things I like to tell them is, remember God is good. Psalm 119.68, for God is good and does good. Because in the middle of trials and tribulations, you've got to remind yourself that God is good. So by saying, Lord, you are good, I'm reminding God you are good, is really reminding me that he is good. So, pray scriptures there. It blesses you, it gives you a road map, and it also reminds you of the nature and character of God. So now let's go back and break down this psalm, if you will. Please note in verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. There's a relationship there. There is a relationship. It is his God. Can you go with me to Romans 8, please? Romans 8. I don't know about you, but sometimes in the midst of the time in the fish, I can convince myself how unloved I am by God. And what a life in the pit of hell that is. Romans 8, read along with me, please, there, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 32 is just a deep truth. I don't know if anybody could ever fully teach verse 32. It is so simple and so deep at the same time. God says this, if he gave you Jesus, if he was willing to give himself through death and resurrection, is he not going to give you everything else you need? I mean, what a, what a simple point. I mean, imagine somebody loving you so much to make you the best meal you've ever had, and they present you the plate, the napkin, the cup, everything else, and you say, oh, can I have a fork? And they say, no. Curse you for asking. Of course not. That's just ridiculous. So if Jesus is willing to give up his life, and I sit here now and say, Lord, I need wisdom. Well, no, of course not. No, 32 is so simply deep. 
33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to pick on you? God has justified you. Who's going to condemn you? Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. No one can condemn me. Christ is there making intercession for me. It's Christ who stands there and says, James is mine. 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, sword or the belly of a fish? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are a born-again Christian here this morning, even if you're in the middle of the belly of a fish, he's still your God. And that's just a wonderful, wonderful blessing to remember. His God. Now, he also will discipline you. Hebrews 12, we talked about this last week. You may be in the depths, but God will still discipline you and love you. Look, look at the wording there in verse 2. Out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of the grave, out of the belly of the dead, I cried out, and you heard my voice. God still responded. I love Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit. Aren't you thankful that even when you're in a pit, you can cry out and the Lord hears? Look at the sovereignty of God, verse 3. You Cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and your flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Jonah didn't blame the other sailors for throwing him in. He says, you cast me into the deep, Lord. It was all you. Your waves surrounded me. God, you drowned me. He doesn't say this with any type of anger. He understands the sovereignty of God. God sent the storms to get his attention. God threw him into the sea to get his attention. Okay, here's the reality of this. If you don't want to drown in the sea with the waves overcoming you, don't rebel against God. So many people have walked away from the Lord's plan for their lives, found themselves overboard, then blame God. Yes, God sent the storm, but he sent the storm because of our rebellion. There's a lot of maturity there in verse 3. No anger, no frustration for God, a full realization that, Lord, you did all this and you're sovereign over it. That phrasing in verse 4, I will look again towards your holy temple, that's an Old Testament way of sowing recommitment. I, I won't read the verses to you, I'll just share them with you. 1 Kings 8, 38, 2 Chronicles 6, 38, Psalm 5, 7. It all carries the idea that you look towards the temple. It's that idea of you're looking towards God and recommitting your life to him. That's the idea that's behind that. Uh, verse 5, Then the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep clothes surround me. Weeds have wrapped around my head. I went down to the mornings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 4, cast out from your sight. Do you realize that's what he wanted? How many times did we read in chapter 1 that he was running from the presence of the Lord? Jump back to verse 3. 
of chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah got what he wanted. He wanted to be cast out of his sight, verse 4. And once he was cast out of his sight, then he wanted to be brought back into his sight. Sometimes God gives us exactly what we want to teach us a lesson. So he wanted to be from the presence of the Lord and God gave him that. He turned his back on God, so God turned his back on him. That was his punishment. Now, here's the beauty of the Lord. The Lord will come back for us. But the reality is Jonah got what he wanted. And I sometimes think that this happens still today for us as Christians. There there are things that we're doing in life we know we shouldn't do, so we're convicted by it. And we don't want to be in the presence of the Lord. We don't want to have a prayer life. We don't want to be in the Word. We don't want to go to church. We don't. So we pull ourselves away from the Lord. Then all of a sudden we reach this point of emptiness and we stop and say, well, where's God? Well, you completely left him six months ago. So we run from the presence of the Lord and then all of a sudden we realize that's all we wanted. We've been cast out of his sight and now we need to come back and say, Lord, I want to be back with you. James 4, 8, just remember that verse. If you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Now, I have to ask this. I don't know if I've ever met someone who said, I have been a faithful, fervent, praying, deep study of the word, faithful ministry, and yet I feel so distant from the Lord. Generally, they come up and they say, I feel so empty. I feel so dry. Well, how's your prayer life? Minimal. How's the time in the word? Barely there. How's the service? Haven't felt like it. I would probably say the natural reaction to that is you are going to feel distant from the Lord. When we pull away from God, there is a distance there. And Jonah is seeing that now. Please note in verse 6, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. He went down to the foundation of bases, right there, the bottom of the mountains. Everybody's got something that makes them nervous and scared. And one of the things in life that I do not like, I do not like the deep water. I'm not afraid to swim, not afraid of that in any way whatsoever. But the deep water is just overly intimidating to me. I have no interest in any way whatsoever of taking a cruise. Not in any way whatsoever. That doesn't make any sense to me. I would love to go see Europe, but I don't want to fly there and I don't want to take a boat there. So I'm kind of stuck on how to get there. So once I figure that out, maybe I'll go. But the point is, I don't want to be over the water. I have this distinct memory. We grew up with a pond and I never minded swimming in the pond. The only thing we had in there was catfish and bass and bluegill. But I have this distinct memory of getting a book from the library of the deep sea fish. And it still scares me to this day. I know they can't exist in a pond. I know they can't. But in my mind, they're still down there. And it just makes me... I look at that verse of him going down to the bottom of the mountains of the sea. Wow. He's talking about the seaweed being wrapped around his head. Down at the bottom there, the waves going over him. But you know what? He got what he wanted. Because if you've ever noticed, there's a repetition of the word down. In Jonah 1.3, he went down to Joppa. In Jonah 1.5, he went down into the lowest parts of the the ship. In Jonah 2.6, he goes down to the bottom of the mountains. The first couple chapters of Jonah is just Jonah going downhill. He finally reaches the lowest point you can reach. The bottom of the sea. And that's where God gets his attention. Please note verse 7, my, when my soul fainted within me, 
I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. If you have a loved one who is backsliding, allow the Lord to use the belly of the fish to get their attention. What got Jonah's attention? The storm did not get Jonah's attention. The call of the Lord did not get Jonah's attention. The only thing that got Jonah's attention is when he sank to the bottom of the sea. I don't know why it is, but some people have to really learn the hard way. And some people have to sink to the bottom of the sea to get their attention when other things aren't working. So he comes to this conclusion in verse 8. If you honor idols, you're forsaking mercy. To choose idolatry, to choose something other than God, is to forsake the only source of mercy that you have. That word for mercy, and this is something that we hit every now and then, and when, I, and when we come up to it, I, I really want us to stop and grasp this word. Because that word for mercy there in verse 8, depending on your translation, it may be loving kindness, it may be steadfast love, there's, there's unfailing love, there's lots of different ways that they try to translate it. It is a very, very powerful word in the Hebrew. And, and I always find it difficult to explain it. So I finally found this little description by Chuck Swindoll. That's, it's the best I've found so far of how to explain this word. He says, mercy, loving kindness, is the best English word to translate this Hebrew term. He goes, but it is woefully inadequate. He says, this Hebrew word is perhaps the most important word in the entire Old Testament. That's a big statement. Because it effectively sums up the character of God. That colorful word is so steep in Hebrew culture and theology that it has no equivalent in other languages. That explains why it has been rendered by different translators as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, goodness, and others. It describes God's covenant love for his people, a passionate, merciful, pursuing, unrelenting kindness that overlooks their inability to repay him or ever return his love. Just can't fully translate it. It is such a deep word of passionate, merciful, love, kindness. We can't fully grasp it. And so you're forsaking that mercy. You know, there is a, a passage in Hebrews, it says, uh, warning us about neglecting our salvation. It's a dangerous thing to look at the mercy of God and stop and say, yeah, that's interesting, and moving on. Jonah stops and says, those who forsake it. That's a dangerous place to be. So he comes back, verse 9. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. That's Psalm 3.8. That's Psalm 37.9. And next thing you know, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. Got a little map I want to show you again, Elias, if you could bring that up. This is what we showed you guys last week just so you could visualize it. If you remember correctly, here we go. Joppa is where he was at. He took a boat to Tarshish, 2,500 miles, the opposite direction. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, 550 miles. Now, when I say this in verse 10, I'm not saying this as a joke. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. The farthest the fish could go was right here, folks. That's water. That's all land. Now, if God wanted to give this fish legs to walk, he can do that. I don't know how far he vomited him. I don't know if it was projectile vomiting that went a good 500 miles and Jonah landed right at Nineveh and walked right in. It's quite possible. 
Or he could have just spit him up right here. And Jonah has hundreds and hundreds of miles to walk thinking about everything he went through. The only thing I know is the verse says that it vomited him up. And us having multiple pets and seven children, that's never a pretty picture. That's all I know. And it's not a pretty picture in any way. So you can take the map down. But I want you to realize that, that he has hundreds of miles to walk. It's understood when you talk about somebody walking in the Bible that maybe on a good day you could walk 20 miles in one day. That's kind of the understanding term. Now, depending on the terrain and what's going on, 20 miles. So if he's walking hundreds of miles, he has weeks to contemplate what he just went through in many, many ways. Now we get ourselves to chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Just pause right there. Are you not thankful for God being a God of second chances? Oh, wow. Peter was restored. How many times have we completely, utterly messed up? And God is a God of grace and second chances. But now we have to ask this. We know what chapter 4 says about Jonah. Jonah is willing, but does Jonah want to do this? I don't know. By the time we get to chapter 4, he is not happy in any way whatsoever. He's willing to do this. But is he wanting? That's a little phrase that Dawn and I use in our marriage. Is, Honey, I know you're willing to do this, but do you want to do this? God wants us to want to. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I've used this example, and I'll use me, so that way you don't think I'm picking on anybody else when it comes to ministry and service. I'm excited for Sunday mornings. I want to be up here. I love teaching. I love everything about this. Can you imagine me getting up here on a Sunday morning saying, I'm here, fake smile. I don't care if you're here or not, but I'm going to present this because I'm going to be obedient to God. Sure, I'm willing. Do I want to? Boy, how many times in Christian ministry have I seen people be willing, but they're not wanting to? God wants our heart. I mean, it's the same thing when I ask our boys to do something at home. Yes, I know you're willing to, but I want you to serve the Lord in this capacity with joy. Jonah was willing. I don't know where his heart was. I don't know. Verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Verse 3 is a difficult verse to translate. Um, we don't know exactly what it's trying to say, the most straightforward thing is that it took three days to get through Nineveh. Now, this is quite possible. They've actually done some archaeology over there, and Nineveh, at its widest point, was about a mile across. It was a big city, as we mentioned last year, last year, excuse me, last week. It was possibly the biggest city in the world at the time. So if Jonah was just talking about the city, it could take him a few days to cover every nook and cranny and little area of the city. But the reality is it had suburbs. And according to evidence, these suburbs sometimes went out almost 50 miles. This was a huge area. So it could also mean that he started in the suburbs and for three days walked through this city proclaiming this message. And what is the message? The message is straightforward. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now he may have said more than that. Or that may have been the only message. We don't know. I don't know what his heart was at this message. He may have been excited. We know in chapter 4, he goes up and camps out outside the city, still hopeful, still waiting 
Then in 40 days, the fire of God comes down. That word for overthrown is the same word used to describe God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So is Jonah at this moment thinking, yeah, 40 days and there's going to be fireworks like we've never seen. He's willing to do it. I have noticed that there's some pastors, some preachers that really seem to enjoy telling somebody you're going to go to hell. I mean, they really seem to enjoy it. This idea of you are going to go to hell for rejecting Jesus. Now, that may be a true statement, but that should be said with a heartbroken sorrow of tears that this person is going to spend eternity away from God. There is no joy. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Ezekiel. There is no joy in the death of the sinners in the eyes of God. He doesn't enjoy this in any way whatsoever. But Jonah seems to once again almost be excited about this. Now, how do we break down chapter 3? It's a very short chapter. I just made a couple quick points here. You're going to see a merciful God. You're going to see a willing voice with a clear message open hearts, repentance, and then you're going to see a merciful God again. Let's just break it down. The merciful God sends Jonah. God is merciful. He wants these people saved. And so Jonah understands this, because look at verse 2 of chapter 4. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. He says, if I go present this message, they are going to ask for forgiveness. They're going to get saved, and I don't want that. That description of God, mentioned there in verse 2, is repeated throughout the entire Old Testament. It's in Exodus, Numbers, Nehemiah, and Psalms, etc. That's how God likes to describe himself. So when I see the world want to present my God as an angry God that lives upstairs, that loves sending people to hell. No, my God, verse 2 of chapter 4, is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. That's how he wants to describe himself. Next, what do we see in this chapter? We see a willing voice. Jonah is willing. We've already established, does he want to or not? We don't know, but he's willing. So we have to ask right now, I have a merciful God that wants to see people get saved. Do we have willing voices that are willing and wanting to go out and present this message? That's evangelism. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good, of good things. How shall they preach unless they are sent? People have to be sent out. Now, there's a gift of evangelism. And I encourage you to pray for that gift. But even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, there still is the God-given burden to be a willing voice to represent Jesus Christ to people. That's, that's part of what it is. Now, I don't say this to make people squirm or to make people uncomfortable, because I know it makes people uncomfortable to stop and say, okay, I just want to get in and get out. I don't want to have conversations with people. I get that. I feel the same way sometimes. But then there's also this eternal burden when I look at these people and I stop and I say, wow, Lord, I, I don't know where they're going to end up. Now, i got to be willing and i got to want it. And i got to pray for it. And, and there's just example after example I could give of God-ordained moments where we go into town and we stop and say, Lord, just give us one person, one person to represent you to. And next thing you know, there's a conversation that happens. Tracts are handed out. And you get a chance to share the gospel because we're willing and we got to pray to want to. Make the message clear. 
Jonah's message in verse 3 is very, very clear. Part of the gospel, which means good news, is you also have to deliver the bad news. Sin must be paid for. So, Nineveh, you're full of sin, and you're going to be overthrown. That's the good news and the bad news at the same time. But now we get to verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from them, from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Got to have open hearts. And when those open hearts receive the message, then you have to have repentance. What is repentance? This is really kind of, we've got two points here to kind of close with, and basically one point is repentance. What does it mean to have a prayer of repentance? To get right with God. That's what it really means. Repentance is, it means getting right with God. It's not just about escaping judgment. If you get caught doing something you should not be doing, repentance is not just, oh boy, what do I have to do to not have any judgment? I remember distinctly years ago, I had a guy that got himself in trouble, did something stupid. He showed up in my office. He wanted to talk. And as we talked about it, he told me about how bad he felt. And I was just talking to him and just trying to discern where his heart was at. And I asked him, I said, if you wouldn't have got caught, would you be here? He said, no. I said, if you wouldn't have got caught, would you do it again? Yes. I don't think you're repentant. I think you got your hand caught in the cookie jar and you got slapped and now you want to do whatever you can to get out of this. Repentance is getting right with God, not just escaping judgment. Repentance will always bring a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. I'm wrong. No excuses, no passing the buck. I have completely, utterly sinned if you're not accepting the fact that you sinned it's just that you feel bad for making a mistake and getting caught there's many people that feel bad oh and there are tears there's lots of tears there are tears of getting caught tears of the judgment that is coming but not tears of repentance repentance is not just being sorry it's not just trying a little harder to do something a little better Repentance is I'm reorienting myself, uh, getting a new compass, a new understanding of what's right, and I'm going in the right direction. It, It literally is a compound word that means to change your mind. Because I realize I am wrong and I am sin, and I need to change my mind and how I look at it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's two types of sorrow. There's the sorrow of the world, it's saying, that you got caught and you feel bad and I don't want to get in trouble and what do I need to do to make this right? And then there's repentance that says, I'm wrong with God and that's all that matters and I want to be right with him. I've done many, many visits to jail over the years as a pastor and I've seen lots of tears in jail. And I've seen the sorrow of the world that I can't believe I got caught and I feel awful and I'm going to spend the next years in here and what do I need to do to get out? 
And I've also seen the sorrow of repentance saying, I deserve to be here, I need to be here, and may God use this to make me a better man. That's hard. You've got to stop and look, which sorrow is it? I love this quote. Do a thorough job of repenting. Do not hurry to get it over with. Hasty repentance means shallow spiritual experience. You ever run into somebody like that? Maybe you've done it yourself, where you realize you got caught. Fine, I'm sorry, what do I need to do to make this right so everybody's happy again? I don't know if that's repentance. Repentance is, I really messed up, Lord, and I need to get right with you. And yes, those relationships with other people will hopefully be healed in time, but right here, right now, I have to readily admit I'm a sinner, and I'm sorrowful over my sin, and I'm mourning over my sin. Well, the world just shrugs off their sin and says, okay, sure, yeah, you caught me. What do you want to do about it? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Let me put it bluntly by putting it to you like this. As long as you are in the position of trying to justify yourself, you have not repented. As long as you are clinging to any attempt at self-justification and self-righteousness, you have not repented. The man who repents is the man who, like David says, there is not a single excuse. I see it clearly. I have no justification. The things I see in my life, I hate them. I had no business doing them. I did them willfully. I know it's wrong. I admit it. That's repentance. That's a hard definition. But this is what we're supposed to do. You realize the first recorded word of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark is repent. The first recorded word of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is repent. If you remember correctly, in the book of Acts, when Paul, excuse me, Peter got done doing the message at Pentecost, and they said, what must we do? Peter's response was, repent. Acts 26, verse 20, says that you're supposed to do works befitting repentance. I'm sorrowful over my sin, and so therefore I want things to change. Please remember this. Please remember this. We are saved by what we believe, not how we behave. But how we behave is changed by what we believe. So therefore, when I believe that I'm a sinner and I need the Savior, it changes how I live. And that's what repentance is. Godly sorrow for sin. The people of Nineveh repented. And now we're back to our merciful God. Verse 10. Saw their works. They turned from their evil way. Relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Are you not thankful for that merciful, slow to anger, abundant in mercy, God? So what's it mean in verse 10 when God relented? Some translation says God repented. Once again, repented means change your mind. Oh, hold on a second here. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. God is not a man that changes his mind. So what does this mean? This is where it's trying to show us in our language how to describe God. He, he, he altered his One guy put it this way, his visible procedure towards mankind. His nature always is a God of forgiveness. We just didn't see that because we were in sin. Once we ask for forgiveness, we see his nature of forgiveness. And so therefore, he relents of it. This is what it's talking about. I'm going to judge you. That's my nature. Okay, well, Lord, I'm sorry. Now I'm going to forgive you. That's my nature. Oh, you changed your mind. No, I didn't change my mind. I fulfilled my character, my nature. My nature is a God of judgment on sin. But when sin has been dealt with through forgiveness, my nature is forgiveness. 
So God doesn't change his mind. We just see both sides of his nature and character coming out. And the way the Bible tries to describe it to us is trying to say that God changed his mind in the sense of that he changed in how he was dealing with us based on his forgiveness and mercy. Now, if we could just finish this chapter, this book, I should say, right here, what a wonderful book. But next week, we got chapter 4, and we have the most sullen, stubborn, depressed, discouraged, whiny Jonah you've ever seen. That's just going to go sit for 40 days and hope that fire comes down and destroys this town. And that's what we're going to get into next week. Let's pray. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that's in the belly of the fish, may they let this affliction get their attention. If there's somebody we know that's in the belly of the fish, may you use affliction to get their attention. Thank you for being a God that is merciful and gracious. May we be a willing voice to go present that message. May hearts be open to your salvation. And thank you for being a God of second chances. You are good and do good in your name. Amen. Josh, if I'm going to come up here for the final song. Hey, hey in way of announcements, uh, we got a lot of things going on here in the next couple weeks. Church cleaning day going on May 14th. All are invited. Youth, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, no matter what your age is. There's a sign-up sheet back there on that table. Prayerfully consider coming out and serving by helping clean a certain section of the church. Uh, also coming up May 15th, next Sunday, is a VBS work day. So for those that would like to help out with VBS, maybe you're not able to help with the actual week of VBS, but you can come out and do a work day after the 1030 service. Lunch will be provided as well. Uh, graduation Sunday coming up uh, two weeks from today after the second service. So grandparents, parents, if you have a child or a grandchild graduating that comes out here to church, let Pat know so we can get them signed up. Uh, that would be a wonderful blessing to acknowledge them in this new season of life. And if you look at the back, we have a lot of information going on with Vacation Bible School. Prayerfully consider getting involved with this. And uh, moms, we want to honor you on Mother's Day. And there are flowers there in the foyer as you walk out. Grab one of those. Those are from right to life. Um, so we get to support the idea of pro-life and also moms on the same day there. So be blessed by that. And check the bulletin there for anything else that's going on you can prayerfully consider getting involved with. We'll go over to Josh here for the final song, and I'll close you out with a word of prayer. master you are to know lord you are the only master that is uh, that is worthy of our servitude lord lord thank you for being such a wonderful merciful god thank you for being a master that uh, that will grant us mercy and grace lord thank you for staying with us in our tribulations you are good and do good we love you and we praise you in your gracious name we humbly pray
Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there.